Hey everyone, Dave Broadbeck here. The lecture you're about to hear is for psychology, also biology, uh, 3506 neuropharmacology, and it's for the, uh, I guess, winter of 2018. Enjoy. <laughs> I don't know why I put exclamation points after that. This is sad. <laughs> shouldn't, shouldn't be happy. Should be sad. Um, so what I want to talk about today is dependence and addiction. It's sort of the last bit of introductory stuff for the course. The rest of it basically is going to be, here's a drug, how's it work? Here's a drug, how's it work? Here's a drug, how's it work? Right now, this is to get us all on the same page as some, some terms and also some concepts. So... And I talked about this in brain behavior last term. Um, when people first started thinking about problem drug taking, not drug taking behavior on its own. People, and when we start talking about alcohol, you realize people have been taking drugs since they're good people. Seems to me if you banned all drugs, people would just spin around in their front yard until they got dizzy and fell over. I mean, it's just people like getting feeling funny. It's good, right? So we've been taking drugs forever, but I'm talking about problem drug taking Okay, This is when it takes over your life. This is when it becomes a, a lifestyle. Getting up in the morning and putting rye in your fruit loops. Right? Well, I gotta get up, I may as well start some cocaine. That that kind of thing, problem drug taking behavior. And it seems weird. Because It's not like you're avoiding pain. So you think of most times when you take some substance, some drug, even a non-psychoactive drug, let's talk about it, you could be anything. You wake up, you have a headache, you take, a, you take some Tylenol. You're avoiding pain. It's a treatment. Right? That makes sense. Sometimes we drink to excess or do other things. That's because we had a very bad day. Right? So maybe you had a bad day, maybe you drink, you get hammered. I've done that. Well, I've done that. After my first master's thesis proposal talk. <laughs> I just went to a bar and drank going, this isn't for me. I have another picture. I've obviously made a life choice mistake. <coughs> I've been in graduate school four weeks. Oh, I'm stupid. Ah, graduate school, when all your dreams are crushed. It's <laughs> really true. Um, good stuff happens too, but there are, there are the, the dream crushing does happen. Um, so we've all done that. That's, that is avoiding, that's to try to treat pain in essence. But typically, when you look at people who have drug problems, you'd say, or drug taking problems, a lot of times they're like, not avoiding anything. You're just. Bakehead. Right? You're a meth addict. Okay. It also doesn't affect all people the same way. Many people can have a drink or six now and then, and they don't then real it doesn't then become like I said a lifestyle. Right? People can binge drink on weekends. I'm sure none of you do that, but not on weekdays. Right? 
Some people, however, can't do that. They just drink. I have a friend who, who said, you know, he figured out when he was about 20, and he's now in his 60s, but he said he figured out when he was about 20 that he liked alcohol a little too much. So he just doesn't drink alcohol. Good choice. He knows that if he starts, he's going to start enjoying it way too much. And he had a little experience like that. But most of us, most people, in fact, can take psychoactive drugs, and we don't have that effect. It doesn't have that effect on us. Right? It doesn't become a, this has changed my life in a way that I must now ingest this substance constantly. Most of us don't have that. Right? Most of us don't. And you don't actually physiologically need a drug. Right? You can get by without it. It's not like food or air or water. Yes, and I know sometimes it feels like you need and people will say, I need a drug, I need a drink, I need a cigarette, whatever. But you live without it. Right? So it's strange behavior when you think about it. Like it, it is statistically abnormal. So people try to think about this. And of course, the immediate reaction that, that, that happens in sort of Victorian times is, well, obviously it's because you have a lack of moral fiber. You must be some sort of degenerate. You are bad. You have no willpower. You must have, you've probably heard this, right? You may have even said this to somebody. If you have, don't say that again. It's not nice. It's also not very truthful. But we have, we, you may have friends that have problems with, and it can be all kinds of different behaviors that we think of as, quote, addicted. Maybe you play too much Xbox to the point of I can either play or I could do write my paper. Well, I'll write my paper as soon as I get this achievement. Um, I've never done that. Never. I'm an achievement whore. I just look things up and go, okay, well, I'll do this a whole bunch. I hate this game. But, oh, look, 20 meaningless points. Um, apparently no one else in the room does that. I'm sad. But... If you have a friend like that, or you have a friend, you, we all, we all, many of us have friends who eat sort of compulsively, right? And it's like, well, just stop. You look at them and go, and they say, oh man, I, uh, ice cream, I can't stop myself. Ice cream, my head, you can't have ice cream in my house, it's kind of like heroin for me. I have an ice cream maker, and about four times a year I make ice cream and it's a real mistake because I just sit there going, well, this is delicious. How bad can it be? It's all natural. It's mostly just cream, eggs, and, well, bacon fat because it's bacon ice cream, <laughs> which is delicious. By the way. I pay for that. But you better say to your friend, just stop eating so much. Stop buying things on eBay. Know that i got to win this bid. What you're basically saying there is it's your fault because you have no willpower, you have no morality, you have no. You're not an adult. You're not a baby. And this is a very Victorian attitude, though it's one that still exists. Right? 
It certainly is a very good model of drug-taking behavior, but it's one that, in fact, is in the popular... Oh, God, I'm almost going to say zeitgeist. Oh, what the hell I know? Zeitgeist. I hate that word. No, I hate it. Certain words I don't like. I like hijinks. It's got three letters in a row of dots on it. Now, that's not a very good model of drug-taking, and it also doesn't explain anything. So... Let's think of a different way to look at it. Let's say you have a disease. So, and this was early on. When I say early, this is the early part of last century. So we're talking post-World War I, just post-World War I. Maybe it's not a problem with your character or your morality. What a crazy idea. Maybe you've got a disease, or today we'd say disorder because people don't like it. Chance of me walking into stuff. So, you've, today we might say disorder, and in fact, this is a very common idea. You hear this said a lot that what people have is a disease, what people have is a disorder. Um, they're sick. Right? This starts really with um, a guy named Jelinek, and we'll talk more about him uh, when we get to talk about alcohol. This is the idea that people who drink too much have a disease. <coughs> they are sick. And many of us have heard this, and in fact, it's a very commonly accepted notion today. They're diseased, they're, they're sick, they're, it's a disorder. And in fact, it's listed in the DSM as a psychological disorder. Question for you. It's been studied for the, the, the notion of the disease model is probably a hundred and it's probably a little over a hundred years old. It is a little more than a hundred years old. What's the disease mechanism? People have been studying it, Curtis mentioned. People have been studying, say, people with alcohol problems or other drug problems. Easiest to study people with alcohol problems because it's legal. It's hard to study people with other drug problems because, frankly, admitting you have a drug problem it means you're admitting you've done something illegal. It's a hard thing to study. hundred years of research, no one knows what the mechanism is. That's interesting. You would think after a hundred years, someone would figure out the mechanism. Also, the case that there are a lot of psychological disorders that we don't know the mechanism physiologically for. That's for sure. Though, as research progresses, people start to figure things out and drug treatments show up, etc. It hasn't really happened for problem drug taking. 
I don't like the word addiction very much, so I'm often going to say things like problem drug taking. I'll probably slip down and say addiction. I don't like the word addiction. <coughs> uh, I don't like it because uh, it makes it sound like it's a disease, and I don't think it's a disease. Is it problem behavior? Oh, God, please. Yes? Hey. Yep. Uh, what happens if it gets to the point of dependence? Does it not become a disease? Dependence simply means... <coughs> In, 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 in sort of the parlance of a course like this, or in pharmacology generally, dependence simply means the existence of withdrawal symptoms. That's all it means. Does that not in itself become a disease? You drink coffee? Yes. Yeah. When you wake up, you have a headache? A little stuffy nose? No, but it's. Don, uh, answer my question. No. Really? I do. Curtis does. So Curtis has a disease. Because <laughs> he has dependence on caffeine. Is it a problem? Yes. Is it something that is physical? Yeah, sure. But I, I think taking the extra step of it, saying now we have a disorder, now we have a disease, and we have no mechanism for it, for the overarching thing of problem drug taking behavior. Um, that to me is the, the, the sort of one of the things that makes me question the whole model of there be, of it being a disease itself. But it develops into something. Oh, something horrible. Please, I'm not saying... I am not dismissing problem drug taking or addiction, whatever you want to call it, as something that we shouldn't worry about. No, hell no. Hell no. I am saying that the in the traditional notion of what we would like to call a disease, I don't know that we would... Or, you know, would you call, I don't know, let's say, internet porn addiction, would you classify that the same as, as, as diabetes? I don't know. I'm uncomfortable doing that. <coughs> let's say so someone that has been taking heroin for years and now has like a physiological dependence to taking heroin. You can't just stop taking heroin at that point. That could kill you. You stop taking heroin. Withdrawal symptoms are 36 hours long. It's no fun, and yet it can kill you. It can kill you, yeah. Of course it can kill you. But just because something can kill you doesn't necessarily make it a disease. I mean, what I'm saying here is that the idea that there is some overarching disorder that happens in people that have these problems, that is an explanation. I, don't, I, I think it's left wanting. I... I I think what you're doing here by calling it disease is a disease is your uh, falling to the, the nominal fallacy. You're naming something, therefore you think you've explained it. So when I say that this person has a drinking problem, oh, they're an alcoholic. Have I explained their drinking problem? No, I've just said they're an alcoholic. It's like, why not just call it Steve? Apology made when you're Steve. So yeah, drink the problem. Oh, Steve. It's not an explanation. Yeah. I think you're, like, for people who don't get it, um, it's easier to call it a disease when often the explanation is not that simple. I think that's, a, that's well put. I mean, I, I think it's, 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 a, it's, it's a nice, easy way to feel like you've explained something by calling it something. That's the normal fallacy. And you haven't actually explained it if you've just given it a name. Right? That's the issue here. 
And that's the issue I have with the disease model of drug taking, is that it has no explanatory power. I want to explain the behavior. I want to be able to explain it at levels from the biochemical up to the societal. I want something that I can say, here's why a person in this population is more likely to have a drug problem than a person <coughs> in this population. Both at a, everything from the biochemical up to the societal. I feel like by the risk of calling it a disease is sort of like it's enabling. You run the well, risk. I don't know, maybe. But you run the risk of, you, you alleviate the, 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 the control factor. Like, oh, I have a disease, I can't control it. If it's a behavioral problem, if you look at it on like the psychological side of things, yeah. you do have a little bit of control, no? Maybe. I, I... If it's a disease, I have no choice. Maybe. I, I'm not entirely... I'd have to think more about that. I see your point, but... I, I say this, like, if you go to AA meetings, yes. there's a lot of people there yes. that claim it's a disease. The, the AA, that's where it comes from, <laughs> the disease right? model, yeah. And they, they claim that it's a disease, and yes. a lot of those people alleviate the responsibility of the choice that they made to consume. Yes, and I think... And we're going to get to the point of saying that eventually... I can explain this behavior without having to worry about, quote, personal responsibility and all that stuff. What, because the last thing we want to do is, say, is, is, is go back to something and say, is go back you know, before the disease model and say, oh, obviously you're just doing the wrong thing. Like, we don't want to do that either. I don't want to blame the victim. No, but you can't say that you have no choice because you picked up the beer. It's pretty easy to, to, to say that when you don't have a problem. That's all I'm saying. I'm yeah. not saying you do or don't, and it's none of my business. But yeah, I'm but saying it's pretty easy for me to say that <clears throat> as someone who doesn't really have a, a drug problem. Yeah, would it be important then to differentiate between actual disease and then mental illness? Is that what's uh, no, no. I, I have no issue with that whatsoever. As a psychologist, I'm, I'm perfectly happy saying that parents and schizophrenia is a disease. I'm pleased with that. You know, um, and I can actually give you some pills that the symptoms go away. That's the beautiful thing about that. <laughs> or, or obsessive compulsive disorder, where I can do the anti. Uh, SSRIs and then it actually treats it. Or, or depression. Um, the issue I have with the, with the disease model is I think when I think of diseases, I think of diabetes. I think of what I have right now, flu. I know how those things work. Much more diabetes I know how those things work. <coughs> no one really knows how this works. <clears throat> this is the issue here. You will hear people say it's genetic. You'll say because they'll say, "Yeah, but you know." And, and <clears throat> excuse me. If I can look at your, uh, if I look at twin studies, comparing uh, monozygotic versus dizygotic twins, so they're, they're raised in the same environment. But the, if, if you're monozygotic and your twin has a drug problem, you are more likely to have one too. <coughs> to die twins. There's a, and, and, if, and if you are what the people in the uh, in AA talk about, family history positive, like if you're the family history of there being drinking problems, let's say, in your family, you are much more likely to have a drinking problem, even if you factor out 
environmental stuff. What do you think about fetal alcohol syndrome? What I think about it, I think it's a horrible thing. You don't think there's any relation to what? To drinking down the road from it? I'm sorry, I understand the question. So do you not think that your this slide genetic is you're saying so what about it? Well, well so what's genetic? Your eye color is genetic too. I don't consider that a disease. That's, that's what I'm saying. Genetic, it's a characteristic. Having a drug problem is a characteristically, if you want to call it a personality characteristic, you can. Um, I'll say that the notion that there are, quote, addictive personalities has been tested and found to be just not true. Right? So the genetic thing isn't, an, this is the argument that's often brought up. Well, it's, there's a genetic component to this. So. Genetic component have tall yard too, because we don't say tall people are diseased. So I don't like the disease model too much because it has no explanatory power. I want to explain this behavior. Well, what about physical dependence? Um, okay. Opium became a problem, uh, morphine became a problem in the late, mid to late 1800s, both in the United Kingdom and the United States. You get soldiers uh, during the, it was isolated around that time, and then right after, battlefield medicine changed a great deal, and soldiers were able to be treated with things like morphine, in the Civil War, uh, doctors didn't know really about how much to give, and people were giving tremendous amounts of morphine. Then people end up having a morphine issue. You get a, you got, in the 1870s, you actually, keep up with the opiate problem today, same thing was happening in the 1870s in the States. Um, and on the other hand, it was also a recreational drug that was used a lot. Uh, it was banned in some places, but it was banned in the UK, but had opium because they ran cases that sold opium. So they said, hey, China, you have to sell opium. China said, we don't want to sell opium. We don't want legal opium. So the United Kingdom went to war with China and made them sell opium. Colonialists, great. So they ended up, it's just a weird story. Anyway, people recognized there was a problem. And they said, well, what's happening? What, what happens when you take opium? Why do you get sick? Take morphine. Oh, because your body makes a thing called autotoxin. Right? So the withdrawal symptoms, you have pleasant parts of taking opium. This was theorized. It was caused by the fact that your body produced a poison called autotoxin. It made poison. There is no such thing as autopilot. <laughs> it doesn't exist. But now we get the notion that the, the autotoxic thing went away. People couldn't find it. <coughs> but the idea that your body now needs something which makes you take the drug, stop. Okay. 
It's a caffeine delivery system. I also like drinking coffee, but it's a caffeine delivery system. This is a very popular notion today. You will hear often hear people say, Oh, quitting smoking, the first like five days, that's when you're still physically dependent on it. Once you're past that, it's all psychological. Anybody here who's quit smoking heard that? Five days, days. Yeah, sure, you've heard that, right? The nice thing is, this accounts for the sort of abnormality of it. Your body's producing a poison. It's not, but... There's something weird physically happening to your body. Okay. Tie this together with the disease model, and you have basically what the medical profession talks about today when they talk about drug taking. Put those two things together, you've got a pretty standard view of what drug problems with drug taking. some explanatory power, so I'm not completely opposed to this idea. It's just the notion that there's a physical part of it that's cool. My question is, then why does it affect everybody like this? Oh, that's true. Because there are people who take cocaine recreationally and don't have a problem with cocaine problem. There are people who spend parts of grade 12 on speed. Maybe that was just me. Uh, but don't actually have a problem with methamphetamine. I may have finished my economics exam in 17 minutes, but I have a misspent youth, I'm just saying. Um, don't be like me. I was wondering if my mom listens to this. I think she knows all these things. By the way, your parents know everything about they, they just know those things. They just tell you it's the kind of things they tell you when you're older. And you go, oh, that time when I was sick for four days, I was just drunk. Yeah, I know. It wasn't really something I worried too much about. Everybody's stupid now and then. They just let you know. That's when it becomes a problem. things that produce bad withdrawal symptoms, right? So it should really only work with depressants. As a rule, stimulants, while they will produce withdrawal symptoms, don't produce really nasty withdrawal symptoms. Hmm. Okay. 
So going back, and this goes back, back to the 30s, look at that. Something's added in here. Oh, there's also habituation. You, you get it. And in this habituation, in this case, I'm not talking about habituation like uh, with nematodes and you poke at them or something, or plesia poking at them like I talked about in brain behavior. I'm talking about it's a, it becomes a habit. It's just something you do over and over again. So this notion is right. So now we can have a drug problem with a physical dependence with so a physical dependence on something without really showing nasty withdrawal symptoms because it's a habit. So stimulants don't produce these nasty withdrawal symptoms that depressants do. They produce withdrawal symptoms. I'm not saying they don't. There are very few drugs that produce no withdrawal symptoms. Right? But comparatively, the withdrawal symptoms from stimulants are nothing like the withdrawal symptoms from depressants. Oftentimes, the withdrawal symptoms from stimulants involve sleeping. Right? And I know that I'm sure there are people in here who have taken caffeine pills, chasing them with Red Bull while they're studying. And you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. You sleep for two days and you're okay. That's the withdrawal symptoms. They aren't fun. Though sleep's kind of fun. The older you get, the more you realize sleep's pretty great. I saw this comic the other day going on Facebook. When you get older, different things excite you. A new pen, Boy, this is life changing. Cleaning up the lint trap in your dryer. Oh, look at all that. This is great. By the way, when, you're, when you've had a problem when your house almost burned down because your lint trap was too full, it is great. Every time you clean the dryer out, which you do constantly, and then you go outside and watch to make sure it's, 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 it's vaping properly. And you smell it. Smell like it's burning? No, okay. I'm not saying that happened to me, I'm saying that happened to me. Our house almost burned down. That duct worked. Anyway! Five years later, there was a fire alarm test. You know? Fire chief comes, uh, comes through. He goes, Aren't you that guy whose house almost burned down in their dryer? It's like, Why are you going to live that down? <laughs> 80,000 people living here. He also came by when we did the, uh, got our fire pitch uh, permit. He's like, uh, how's your dryer? It's just this thing's down? Leaving our dryer's excellent. So, okay, we got something that doesn't really produce withdrawal symptoms or produces little withdrawal symptoms or people that can take drugs and it becomes a problem, but they don't. Think about this. Think about someone who drinks a lot every day, doesn't get a hangover. So those those had to drink enough. Those what their limit is. But it's not that. But it's affecting their life. They're not doing a very good job raising their kids or, or cleaning up their lint in their dryer. Um, that's a drinking problem. It's interfering with their lives. But they're not showing any withdrawal symptoms. Oh. What about someone who drops acid every single day? Remember those guys in high school? That's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's a really great life choice. Uh, just drop acid every day. LSD produces like no withdrawal symptoms. None. Except from reality. Well, yeah. 
but it produces no withdrawal symptoms. But LSD is remarkably safe as it does. But if you're taking acid, if you're tripping like every single day, that's an issue. That's a real problem. But there's something physical, it seems, going on there, right? You don't wake up puking and feeling like there's little red devils running all over your body and then suddenly you're freezing. Well, here's a new idea. Psychological dependence. Here's a problem I have, first of all, with this notion that, and this is that talk about smoking, people say, well, then after that, it's just a habit, it's just psychological. First of all, I don't like the idea of, 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 of separating the, the physical and the psychological. It seems to me that at some level, everything is run by your nervous system. So there's that. So that's a philosophical problem I have with it. This is when you need a drug, but you don't need a drug. <coughs> so you like a drug, and the book talks about drug liking. And you can actually ask somebody, do you enjoy this drug? And the answer is yes, then you have a, a liking reaction. I don't think I would have a, a liking reaction, for example, to LSD. I would take an acid. I don't think I would. I don't want the world to be like a horror movie. Oh, look, the walls are moving. I don't want the walls moving. I like stable walls that aren't coming in at me. Some people like that. Look, that's your thing. That's cool. Other people like roller coasters. Also, not my thing. Some people like horror movies. What's wrong with you? You're paid to be frightened. How about paying to laugh? <laughs> and love? Or war movies. I watch war movies. That's different. Which is weird. So it's when you crave a drug that you don't have a physical dependence. You don't have withdrawal symptoms from. Again, dependence means withdrawal symptoms. Remember that. That's a it's, a it's a key definitional thing. Dependence just means withdrawal symptoms. So when do you crave a drug? Well, when, it's, when you're psychologically dependent. How do we know you're psychologically dependent? Well, you're craving a drug. Oh. It seems like a little circular. And by a little, I mean completely. You can get continued abuse of drugs. When I say abuse, I mean it's affecting your life. So taking a drug, just using a drug, I don't think of that as abuse. I think of that as like, do whatever you want for your free time. It's when it affects your ability to, 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 to live your life. Right? So if someone drops acid every day, I think they've got a problem. Because it's affecting their ability to do their job, to go to school, to whatever. I think we would all call it but they don't, that drug doesn't produce any withdrawal symptoms. <coughs> so this is, quote, addiction without dependence. There are very few withdrawal symptoms from marijuana. Right? Really? What happens with marijuana? You get a case of the stupids the next day. For a while, you're a little slow. It's not pleasant. It's not pleasant either, but it just is, right? You don't wake up in the morning puking and shaking. 
Or, and that's, oh, yeah, like heroin. Oh, yeah, or like puking with a headache. Oh, you mean like alcohol? <laughs> Hangovers, minor withdrawal from alcohol. If you get up every morning and get hot, you know, wake and bake, right? And it affects your ability to do things in your life. That's a drug problem. But marijuana doesn't really produce any producing withdrawal symptoms. A little tired. A little slow. Your stomach might be a little bloated because you ate four panzerottis and a larger number of fries. And some Cheetos. And a can of corn. What do we have in the house? Corn. You want to open it? Uh huh. I think we should. Warm it up? No. <laughs> you eat it all and you go, I wonder if corn water's any good. Drink it? I'm not saying I've seen this happen, I'm saying I've seen that happen. One of my favorite moments, a friend of mine, it's probably about 20, a long time ago, and he looks, and we're looking for something to eat because we may have been high. And my friend, who I will not name because he's a very responsible job now, and he's in trouble probably, but he like pulls out this can of corn and goes, what about niblets? <laughs> and the great thing is, you're so stupidly high, you go, <coughs> probably a great idea. <laughs> and he drank the corn water. <laughs> He's like, is it any good? No, it's horrible. <laughs> so, now if you did that every day, that's a drug problem. It's affecting your life. But there's really, when you wake up in the morning, you don't go, you don't go, Oh man, do I ever need to get stoned or I will puke? It doesn't work like that, right? See, if addiction without dependence, it's a strange thing. Huh. Aha. What about this idea? For the longest time, people thought you couldn't get animals, quote, addicted. You couldn't get problem drug-taking behavior in non-humans. Uh, well, animals have no moral compass, so it couldn't be that. But also, uh, it's a human disease, so they don't get it. So this was sort of the objection to even doing animal research on drug-taking behavior. What if we could take a catheter and, or, 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 uh, and go right into the into a, a veins or, or take a, a cannula and go right into the brain and deliver drugs to a rat. You, you can do that. That's pretty easy. I mean, you need a few to know to do it. You can't do anything. Anybody can do it. But it's, it's experimentally quite easy to do. Okay? Uh, in my office, well, not right now, my office upstairs where it's all taken apart, covered underneath a tarp, there's a rat atlas. And there are these great big things, and it's, it's like, do you want to implant a cannula that will go directly into nucleus accumbens? Yes. What does your rat weigh? 200 grams. Go in this many millimeters on this angle right here. That's how it works. Like it's, it's that sin. It's actually a pretty easy thing to do nowadays. So this was figured out in the 60s that rats will work for drugs. 
When I say work, I mean they will push a little bar to get morphine delivered into their brains. I always have this picture in my head of a little rat with a sign saying, we'll work for drugs. But So Thompson and Schuster actually got rats to work for morphine. So they push a little bar. You know, who here, who here doesn't know about operant conditioning? Actually, better question. Who here wants me to quickly explain operant conditioning because you forgot all about it because you took me to a site a couple years ago? Probably some of you, right? Yeah, good. Okay. Thank you. Please, someone who was, was brave enough to put their hand up. I appreciate it. The notion is for operant conditioning is this, is that a reinforcer happens and that makes the behavior more likely. So when I give, so you got a behavior like pushing a little bar for a rat and he gets some food, the bar pressing behavior becomes more likely. That's all that is. Skinner. Okay, make sense? Skinner figured that out in the ooh, 30s. But we can also get rats to push a little bar, get a little bit more. Okay. So rats will actually push a bar to get drugs. You know what's cool? Rats will even push a bar to get drugs that give them a small enough dose that they do not get withdrawal symptoms, even from something like morphine. Now, at first, this also seems circular. Right? Because, in fact, reinforcement theory is the psychological, sort of the, the Skinnerian instrumental conditioning idea is circular. What's a reinforcer? It's something that causes a behavior to be more likely. What causes a behavior to be more likely? A reinforcer. Oh, no. Are we back to something circular? We would be, except that we know the circuits in the brain that cause reward. So it's not just an operational definition. And the operational definition of a reinforcer is something that makes behavior more likely. And it's a shitty definition. Because it's circular. But I, I, I can tell you the physiology behind this. The, the, the neuroscience behind this. So it's called the dopamine hypothesis for reinforcement. This is in your... Limbic system. There is a circuit that goes from your ventral tegmental area, VTA, to your medial forebrain bundle, and to your nucleus accumbens, and it runs on the neurotransmitter dopamine. And in fact, if I give you you being a rat. Sorry. Uh, if I give you morphine directly to your nucleus accumbens, it actually doesn't produce any withdrawal symptoms. But it makes, let's say, uh, I do that after I push a bar, it makes the bar press. 
There's literally no withdrawal symptoms. If, if on the other hand, I give it to your paraaqueductal, paraaqueductal, I'm sorry, ventral gray area, okay. Maybe it's your PDG, you actually get withdrawal symptoms. We know that the reinforcing properties only happen in the, in the, in the reward system. We know that much. Um, why does it produce withdrawal symptoms when it goes to where it's supposed to kill pain? I don't think anybody knows this. I mean, physiologically, we can look at that. But, um, why functionally, So, Schuster had rats work for drugs not causing withdrawal. So first you have rats working for small amounts of morphine. You can also have uh, small amounts of cocaine, no, it was amphetamine. So they got no dependence whatsoever, no withdrawal symptoms. Rats will still work for the drug. They'll still push a bar for the drug. Okay? So you're talking about no withdrawal, which means no dependence. Those two sentences mean exactly the same thing. So they're going to work for drugs in amounts that do not cause withdrawal. In other words, they'll work for drugs even if they don't cause dependence, meaning it's not that they're avoiding being sick or feeling lousy. That said, that's a, that's a nice secondary reinforcer. But the key thing is here, these rats will actually work for drugs that don't cause withdrawal. That's hard to get um, rats to take things orally. So you, you can't always get rats, for example, or, or monkeys or whatever, to, 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 to use the same route of administration as people. It's hard to get rats to smoke little rat cigarettes. Or little rat bomb hits. It's just not going to happen. Little tiny rat one hitters. Just Nick with the scene. I know the I know I know the, the, the terms. You know about Reaper. It's a bit related. There's a use the rule. By the way, I'm trying to bring back people calling marijuana grass. Now that marijuana is going to be legal again, I love that sort of '60s term. So see if you can bring that back. <laughs> it's grass. That'd be great. When the stores open, when the Ontario government-run marijuana stores, that's going to be weird. The LCBO. The LCBO. Well, the LCBO is going to run it, but it's not going to be in the LCBO. Well, no, Which is a shame, because I want to go into the LCBO and go, let's see, gin, vodka, Afghan black. <laughs> that's what I want to do. I mean, theoretically, if I knew anything about different kinds of hash. But... Actually follows the laws of learning. Now, anybody here taking learning with Lord Bloomfield right now? Okay, okay. So you're learning by talking still about habituation and stuff like that. Okay. Eventually, you'll, you'll talk about things like probably the matching law and stuff like that. Uh, you'll talk about oh, I don't know how more salient things are learned better than 
Western religions, all those things. All those characteristics of learning, things that people like to call the laws of learning, drug-taking behavior follows all of them. It follows all these same rules. Because drugs are a reinforcer. There's nothing special about drugs. So that Pickens and Thompson paper, which is is pretty old, (coughs) it's almost old to me. Three years younger. It's pretty old. It's pretty old. I got it to be 53 this year. That's what Um, Basically tested all kinds of different sort of rules that happen in learning, and those same rules happen in drug with drug taking. Am I saying it's just conditioning? Yes, I am. I am saying that you have a circuit in your brain that fires when something feels good, which causes you more likely to do that thing again. That's how we learn things. That's how a lot of learning happens. Oh, that's a lot. We have all taught, those of us with dogs or cats or whatever, have taught our animals to so if you got a dog, you've taught it to what? Sit. When you say sit, and you did that by giving it food a few times and praising it. And eventually, the thing about dogs is you can just reinforce them with praise. Right? I'm such a good boy. You can also do it just by shooting morphine directly into the nucleus accumbens. That's just a little bit of work. It would actually be faster, by the way. You can use electrical stimulation like the nucleus accumbens. You can teach a rat to do almost anything in about 90 seconds that way. You can teach a rat, for example, to stay in one part of a, an open field. Just stand right there by constantly giving him food. And it'll take you two or three days. And I've watched this happen. Or in about 90 seconds, if you have a, an electrode going through the nucleus accumbens and you just push the button every time he stands there, in about 90 seconds, you just stand there and go, give me more, man. This part of your brain is activated and we know it when you take drugs but it's also activated when you eat a meal you've enjoyed it's activated when you watch family guy it's activated when you have an orgasm it's activated when you smell pie delicious delicious pie It's activated when you get useless points or trophies in Xbox or PlayStation. By the way, I know the guy who invented uh, Gamer Points. I've actually met him, and he's a psychologist. And I said, so this is basically just giving reinforcement on a VI schedule. He said, yeah, it's all right. That'll maintain behavior. I said, yeah. It's activated when you win something on a slot machine. And it's, it's very reinforcing, so you keep doing it, even though you're going, I'm losing all kinds of money. 
Mr. Jack Watson. We saw it in weeks. My computer's actually named Mr. Jack Watson. Hello. One of the neat things is that this model explains both the positive and negative effects of drugs and why we keep taking the paradox of them. When you are a drug taker, right, you don't have a drug problem. You know that tomorrow you will pay for this. But even if you don't have a drug problem, has anybody here ever drank too much? Uh, I think so, yeah, sure. So, it feels good, right? Yeah. Which explains why you do it. While you're doing it, have you ever done this? I'm going to pay for this tomorrow. We've all done that. But see, the way learning works is behavior reinforces the closest thing. The long-term stuff, you don't pay, you don't pay attention. People smoke cigarettes. A product that when used is directed will kill you. Yeah, it feels great when you're smoking. People will share needles and put heroin in their arms. Oh, I might get AIDS. Yeah, but it's going to feel pretty good right now. Oh, wow. Must feel really good. They say, I've heard someone who's taken heroin describe it as it's like the whole body is having an orgasm for 45 minutes. It's like, that sounds pretty good. That sounds fun. We should get some, right? It's like, whoa, that sounds great. So this has always been the paradox of drug taking is that very often when there are withdrawal symptoms, they're unpleasant, yet we take the drug anyway. But this explains it because it's going to be about the immediate effect, the reinforcement, not about the long-term effect. The choice in taking a drug depends on the other available reinforcers. And this has been shown in laboratory studies. Heyman's shown this with that it follows what's called the matching law. Uh, The matching law just says that Animals will distribute their behavior to different, will distribute their behavior based uh, in proportion to the reinforcing value of the different reinforcers available. So if you had, like, say, two pecking keys for a pigeon, one that gave up five pellets of food, one gave up ten pellets of food, <coughs> what, pe- what pigeons do is they'll spend twice as much time in the ten pellet one than on the five pellet. You just match the reinforcement. value to their behavior. This actually happens with drug taking. Drugs are just a reinforcer. And they're reinforcer because they activate the this reward circuit from the ventral to the mental area to the medial forward bundle to the nucleus You will find as we go through the course, and when I talk about where are the receptors for drug X, Y, and Z, and it's always going to be, oh, the nucleus accumbens, oh, the meophorbrate bundle, oh, the ventral tug mental area. 
So let's take a step back. Let's think of rats in a cage. Let's think about this society. The lower your socioeconomic status, the more likely you are to have a drug problem. It shouldn't surprise you. You have less things that can reinforce you when you have less stuff, when you have less stuff, etc. There is, however, an easy way to get reinforcement. Model of audio. We shouldn't be surprised that the poorer you are, the more likely you are to have a drug problem. And again, I say, I'm not saying that rich people don't have drug problems. That would be a stupid thing to say. But they are, it is less likely for me, the higher your socioeconomic status, for you to have a drug problem. And that's like literally all over the planet. It doesn't matter where you're from, no matter what your background is, none of that stuff. So we can explain things that at a physiological level and at a societal level. That's cool. We can almost look at this in terms of economics. It's called behavioral economics, which is a thing that's looked at a little bit in, in, in learning. If you're lucky, Lori won't talk behavioral economics because it's boring as shit. But actually, all the stuff on operating conditions is boring beyond belief. Classical conditions is cool. So if we look at sort of the laws, the rules of economics, we can then look at the same sort of thing with learning. One of the big things people look at is the elasticity of demand. So that means as, as the price goes up, does the demand drop? Okay. The more inelastic something is, Probably the more reinforcing. So more elastic is means it'll change. Elastic just means that uh, elasticity of demand means that as the price goes up, the demand drops. Okay, so uh, it's hard to think of something offhand. Going to the movies. As the price goes up, people stop going to the movies. If suddenly movies cost $65 a person, you wouldn't go to the movies anymore. So it's pretty elastic. On the other hand, something that's completely inelastic, water or air. If you had to pay for it, you'd pay whatever you had to because you'd die. Um, we can look at drugs this way. Uh, a classic example here, a pretty safe drug, caffeine. Um, coffee consumption doesn't change based on price. It just doesn't change. There's a great example here. In the late 1970s, there was a, a horrible frost in much of South America where we get a lot of our coffee. And coffee went up to a ridiculous price, about $7 a pound. And you're thinking, that's not that bad. Yeah, in 1979 it is, because that today is about 50 bucks a pound. People kept buying coffee. They complained about it. They kept buying coffee. Because it's like a caffeine. Uh, <laughs> At some level, it would be ridiculous. Right? 
So here's an example. Uh, Carol, 1993, looked at PCP, which is angel dust. PCP has a, is easy to overdose on, so people don't sell it much anymore because, remember, drug dealers are, are, are business people and killing your clientele is a very bad business choice. work for them. But it's also very reinforcing. The price here, if the price was low, this is for, these are rhesus monkeys, by the way. You're thinking, what are they doing? They're buying angel dust from other monkeys? No, they're pushing a bar. And the price is how much you're willing to, how many bar prices you're willing to make. It's pretty inelastic at low prices, then it becomes really elastic eventually. That's what happens with a lot of these products. So the number of responses for the drug, that's the price. <coughs> Until it gets expensive. It was pretty inelastic. And the nice thing is, so you'll see here, they keep responding. However, if saccharin was available, it's sweet. Sweetness is reinforcing. It's like, oh, I can do something else. I don't have to push the bar 500 times. Did I have to push 500 times? I don't have to push the bar 500 times to feel something good. I can get some saccharin and get some sweet. Get some sweet. Again, this shows the idea of if there's something else available, someone will take it. A lot of treatment programs for drug use involve taking joy in daily life things, in being with your family, things like that. Teaching you that those things can be reinforcing. The most effective uh, types of, of, of treatment for, for drug taking involve things like, you know, take some joy in, 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 in going for a walk with your kid. <laughs> Realize how much fun that is. That actually works. things about the, 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 the positive reinforcement model of drug taking is that it can be modeled using animals. Because for things like operant conditioning, which this is all about, we all follow the same rules. Be we pigeons, rats, nematodes, or people. So that's nuts. Now it must be I'm going to make clear that the metabolism of drugs changes depending upon species. So the half-life of caffeine in an adult human is about 30 minutes. So I've ingested about 100 milligrams of caffeine. That's a cup of coffee. It's probably 50 milligrams left. That's an adult human. In a small child, half life three and a half days. Don't give caffeine to little kids. It's a bad thing. Or to rats. Don't give your dog caffeine. 
There's something weird about adults. Adult humans are caffeine metabolizing machines. I don't think anybody really knows why that's true. So not all drugs will be self-administered by all animals. It was hard for the longest time to get rats to self-administer alcohol. So teaching rats to drink alcohol was a tough thing to do. But a little spoiler alert when we talk about alcohol, a former Algoma student for her master's thesis at McMaster University, who's now the chair of the department at the Grant McEwen University in Edmonton, Lynn Honey, managed to get rats, to train rats to drink alcohol. And if you know Lynn at all, that makes complete sense. It's hard to get animals to self-administer certain drugs that humans find, find because they don't find them enforced. You can't really get any animal to take LSD. You just can't. Because most animals are sensible enough to realize that the world, that their, all their perception being screwed up is not good. Most of your rhesus monkeys aren't going around, walking around, I want to change the doors of perception, man. But we're doing that. All they want to do is eat bananas and throw poop in each other. So you can't always get animals to self-administer drugs. But the nice thing is we can, all, we, can, we can look basically at every drug as a reinforcer. And the cool thing is we're going to talk about some drugs that are not, that people do not take recreationally. And the interesting thing is what they do is they, they shut down the dopamine, the mesolimic dopamine system. All right, questions? Good stuff. Thanks, everybody.
thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for Dave, uh, Dr. Dave Broadbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures from Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a uh, uh, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe Music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, Often I put links uh, actually in the uh, what I call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks everybody. We'll see you next time. <laughs>